According to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Once again, we're here for growth. Join me in John chapter 10. John chapter 10. Continuing our look at this uh, Feast of Dedication, what uh, today is known as Hanukkah. One place in the Bible where it's mentioned is right here in this chapter. All right, John chapter 10, verses 22 through 39. This is uh, episode 18 in the last Judean and Prean ministry of Jesus. We are headed towards the crucifixion week. The, in fact, this is Hanukkah uh, in roughly December, four months prior to the cross, Friday, April 3rd, 33 A.D. So uh, we're getting pretty close. I think this is less than 263 in uh, Life of Christ. So uh, it gives you an idea how many we'll be headed for by the time this study is complete. John 10.22 says at that time the feast of the dedication took place at Jerusalem. It was winter and Jesus was walking in the temple in the portico of Solomon. The Jews then gathered round him and were saying to him, how long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. And Jesus answered them, I told you and you do not believe. The works that I do in my father's name, these testify of me, but you do not believe. You do not believe because you are not my sheep, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. The wonderful privileges we have of being his sheep and hearing the voice of our Savior and following after him. These are very important principles that apply in realms of shepherding, not only in terms of the good shepherd, but also in terms of pastors and local churches and exactly what happens in the body of Christ as he's designed us to be a flock, as he's designed us to be a, uh, a church family. All right, well, let's take a moment for silent prayer to make sure we are filled with the Spirit prepared to handle spiritual truth. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you once again. This is a grace blessing. It is a, a faithful provision on your part that you allow each one of us to assemble together on a Wednesday morning, Father, we've got freedom in our nation to do so. We have a, uh, a facility in which you've graciously allowed us to continue to meet here, Father. We thank you for Live Oak and their, their uh, graciousness in allowing us to continue the use of this facility. Father, uh, thank you for uh, brothers and sisters in Christ that are hungry for teaching, that are positive, that want to grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And we lift up those who want to be here today but can't, Father. You understand the the hospitalization, the work schedules, the health, the other things that are keeping them from being here. Uh, Father, we ask that you might overcome and, and uh, provide for those circumstances and details and allow folks to be here at the next available opportunity. We thank you for all these things in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. All right, I have a fresh printing of my notes, which means that I don't have my cheat sheet on the uh, slideshow. So we'll just take a rough guess here. We'll go to slide 13 and see how that goes. It may not be enough. Nope. Let's just start with that. It is our fourth point of study. There are five total that we're going to glean out of this passage. And uh, point four, even as the Jews attempted to murder him, Jesus repeated his message in even stronger terms. And I think that's uh, interesting. There were other previous occasions when... 
the hostility got to that point of attempted murder, and he uh, would simply depart. He would uh, disappear from their midst or elude their grasp or what have you and, and, and go elsewhere. In this case, though, it, it is remarkable because he sticks around. He stops. He gives another additional Bible class, and then he disappears. In this second portion here in verse 31 and following, the Jews picked up stones again to stone him. They uh, really did not take the uh, I and the Father are one message very well. When you start uh, getting into patrological realms, that does spark some uh, satanic opposition. And yet uh, he doesn't just disappear at that point, as he had done previously. He stays and he uh, delivers really a, a sarcastic message. He uses rhetorical devices, and uh, we'll see some of those. We looked at them last week. We'll look at them again here today. Um, and, of course, uh, they're not going to respond to this either. Uh, when you look down at the end of this section, verse 39, therefore they were seeking again to seize him, and he eluded their grasp. So that's his standard technique. He's been using it for some time now. Uh, he's not afraid. He's, not, uh, he's willing to die, but of course he wants to die in the Father's timing, in the Father's plan, the Father's purpose. is going to be on a cross bearing our sins on uh, the 10th of Nisan, or the 14th of Nisan, that is, on the Passover, fulfilling the, uh, the scriptures in that regard. He is not going to die at Hanukkah. That's not, his, uh, that, that's not the feast that has the shadow doctrine that relates to the death of Christ. Passover is the feast that has the shadow doctrine that relates to the death of Christ and the, the work of Christ on the cross. So I think with that as an understanding, we do real well with it. So, oneness with the Father, as we looked at, and this is just a, a brief review to get us caught up, and then I really want to plunge into... Uh, uh, Psalm 81 here this morning. Uh, oneness with the Father was a blasphemous claim of deity which these Jews could not tolerate. Now, it was blasphemous. I put blasphemous in quotes because for him, it's not blasphemous. <laughs> for him, it's true. He is one with the Father. He is God the Son. He is the eternal Son of God, uh, beloved Son that came into the world to, uh, to die on the cross. And that's what uh, he says here when he says... Uh, in verse 36, do you say of him whom the Father sanctified and sent into the world, you are blaspheming because I said I am the Son of God? Okay, this is all true, in which case it's not blasphemy. And um, he's using this rhetoric to cause them to come to his conclusion. They can come to no other conclusion if they're going to accept the canonicity of, uh, of, of the book of Psalms. And that's the logic they can't escape. Well, these guys, I'm calling them the Mosaic Law Observant Religious Nomocratic Jews. And if that's a bit too wordy, um, then come up with your own term, all right? But reconcile it in your own mind. You've got to understand who these Jews are. You know, verse 31, the Jews picked up stones again to stone him, okay? And if you're not careful, you can get confused or you can get kind of, um, you can wonder, well, isn't Jesus a Jew, Right? I thought they were all Jews. They are. Peter and James and John, and, and they're all Jews. Everybody here in this, most of the people we're dealing with in this gospel record are Jews, other than the, the, the handful of Roman soldiers you encounter, or Pilate, or the, the Syrophoenician woman. Pretty much everybody in the gospel record here, of uh, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, they are Jewish racially. The term Jew, as it's used in the gospel record, in particular the gospel of john has a very precise meaning and you might uh, do better understanding it as judeans or uh, as opposed to those from galilee uh, the religious crowd in jerusalem the religious crowd that occupied the temple that that populated the sanhedrin 
um, they were observant, religious, nomocratic, meaning they, uh, they were subject to the law. Not only were they themselves subject to the law, they used the law to control other people's lives. They were from nomos, law, kratos, power. The law was their power. They seated themselves in the, in the chair of Moses and they used law to control people. Uh, if they wanted to find out, you know, am I a Sabbath breaker or not a Sabbath breaker? You had to go to these guys. And they told you. They had their traditions. They had their stipulations. They had uh, so perverted law that the Lord of the Sabbath didn't even recognize the Sabbath as they defined it, see, in their nomocratic system. Sometimes they're called theocratic. I think it was more nomocratic. They weren't all that interested in God, per se, but they were uh, definitely uh, uh, observant of the law as they defined it to control other people's lives. All right. Beyond that, the reader should now realize that uh, Jesus is exactly who he claimed to be and that uh, he's been revealing himself ever since chapter 1 as the only begotten from the Father come to reveal the Father. So how does he respond? They say, tell us plainly. That's what he's been doing. So he's been doing for 10 chapters here in the Gospel of John, revealing himself as the good shepherd, as the door, as the bread of heaven, as all of the things that he's revealed himself and all of the I am statements recorded here in the Gospel of John. Repeatedly, he's been making claims of I am, making claims of being Yahweh Elohim, the Lord God of hosts. Well, he responds with uh, what is called by uh, st- uh, students of rhetoric as Socratic irony. Otherwise, it might be just referred to as uh, tongue-in-cheek sarcasm. All right. He asks questions acting as if he doesn't know the answer. He plays dumb, in other words. Um, and so he'll ask a question here so that they can prompt a response. And, and really, he knows what the answer is. He knows how they're going to answer, but he's using it as a device. I showed you many good works from the Father. For which one of them are you stoning me? I mean, can you understand the sarcasm in that question? You know, was it the walking on water? Was it water to wine? Was it, you know, raising the widow's son? Of all these miracles I've done, exactly which one was it now that you're, you're putting me to death for? So he's asking a, really a goofy question, a stupid question. You know, I said last week, this is like the, the, uh, the methodology of, uh, of Columbo or one of those kind of, you know, where you just kind of act like, like you're a numbskull and just asking these silly questions and people just fall for it, you know, and they, they think you're, you're, you're just a doofus and they, and they don't know that you are actually five steps ahead of them and they're falling right into your trap. And that's what he's doing here. So they answer, well, you know, not for a good work, but for blasphemy. Yeah, we're not, we're not executing you for any of the miracles you've done. And see, the moment they say that, what have they just done? They just hung themselves. Because they just admitted that he's doing miracles. He is serving God the Father. He is accomplishing works of divine power. How can he do that if the Father is not having sent him? If the Father is not the one authorizing these miracles? If God's not the one producing these miracles through him? So they've just hung themselves uh, in, their own, uh, in their own trap. So, he uses rhetoric, he uses the sarcasm, he uses exegetical teaching. He takes them to a passage of Scripture and says, what do you think about that? (laughs) And and they can't answer. They're stumped. Because the Bible is the Bible, and that's what it is. See, And if you accept the authority of the Scripture, then that's that's what you have to deal with. So, uh, for blasphemy. Uh, We're not murdering you because of a good work. We're murdering you because of your blasphemy. You, being a man, make yourself out to be God. So Jesus answered them. 
Has it not been written in your law? I said you are gods. Well, what about that verse back in uh, in uh, Psalm 81? What about that verse? See. All right. Hey, Doug. There's somebody out there who might need, need some help. Thanks. So what do you think about this Bible verse? He uses a passage of Scripture. The exegetical passage of Psalm 82.6. So join me there, and that's where we're going to spend our time today. The exegetical passage was Psalm 82.6. And we touched on this just briefly as we were running out of time last week. So without uh, any additional review, let's just plunge right back into it. I said, you are gods. I said, you are gods. Now, there's a larger context besides verse 6, but that one phrase right there, I said, you are gods, you got to deal with it. Because uh, this is God speaking, this is Yahweh speaking, um, and we can discuss who he's speaking to, because that's open for debate. There are differences of opinion on that. Uh, but regardless, he's speaking to somebody other than himself. So effectively, it doesn't matter who he's speaking to. I believe he's speaking to angels here. Uh, but regardless, whether he's speaking to angels or human beings, the princes of Israel is what a lot of folks think he's talking to here, the elders of the tribes or the, the judges of Israel. I don't think it's, it's conceivable that he can be talking to human beings. He's talking to angelic beings in the spirit realm of creation. And we'll, we'll demonstrate that as we see the larger context of all eight verses. But it doesn't really matter. If God is not speaking to himself and he calls somebody else a God, you've got to deal with that. And if he's not speaking to himself and he's speaking to a group of people and he's calling all of them gods, you've got to deal with that. What's he saying there then? Is he a liar? Is this, what's going on here? And if, in fact, this is uh, a legitimate statement that Yahweh is making, then uh, it kind of takes the wind out of your sails for the accusation of, of blasphemy that the Pharisees are using because Jesus said that he was the Son of God. Well, what do you do with this passage here then? See, In other words, you can't just say out of hand that a statement of, of being God is blasphemy if, in fact, you've got statements like this in the Bible. And so he uses that as his... Uh, passage so this is point one if you're following the outline then point four is the overall main point sub point b and now uh, under b we're going to have a one two and a three the exegetical passage was psalm 82 6 i myself have said you are gods you are elohim you are elohim and this is your term elohim i'm going to give you the vocabulary and get strong's numbers and all that in just a moment but you plural y'all you guys, okay, so we're being from Texas helps. My background on the West Coast does me no good at all. We didn't use y'all growing up in Seattle, Washington. But I got here to Texas and found out, actually, I, I learned in Alabama boot camp that y'all was, was acceptable. You all are gods, okay? The atem here is a plural, second person plural. You all are Elohim, are gods. And Elohim is a term that we have to be careful with because uh, Elohim is plural in form, but very frequently it's singular in use. And when it's used in the singular, it refers to God. It refers to the real God, the one true God. That's one of his names is Elohim. And there's compounds, Yahweh Elohim and Jehovah Elohim or, or uh, different Elohim compounds. Um, but Elohim, when it's used as a singular noun will refer to the one true God. When it's used as a plural noun, then we understand it to be other gods. 
diminished gods. We're going to talk about these created gods, the angelic beings that are Elohim rank in power. And that's what I want to be very clear on, that um, we're not plunging into uh, uh, polytheism or anything of, of that nature. Okay, We're going to be clear on that. But just understand the term Elohim takes some caution and you want to evaluate it. And for especially for English speakers, we really struggle <laughs> because ours is not a, uh, a greatly inflected language. Uh, ours is really kind of a mongrel, <laughs> mongrel language. Even I mean, there are legitimate rules, but no one pays attention to them. So that that hurts us as well as far as that goes. You'll, you'll see what I mean here when we start spelling more of these things out. Now, of course, there's only one God, the only one I will ever capitalize on a slide with a capital letter G. There's only God is the uncreated, eternally self-existent I am. Only God is uncreated, eternally self-existent I am. Okay? Every other God that the Bible talks about with a little g, every other L, would you rather use L, E-L? L is singular, Elohim is plural. We'll talk about that as well. So every other L in the Bible, every other God in the Bible, use a lowercase g, and it's a, they are beings of divine power, and they can do powerful, amazing things on this earth because of their power, but they are, all, they are not uncreated. They are themselves created. They are themselves temporal. They are finite they are not self-existent I am creatures. This was the, the pinnacle of Satan's rebellion when he said, I shall be like the Most High God. I shall be like the Most High L. See, he himself was a God. He is the God of this age. But he is not uncreated, self-existent, eternal I am. He was trying to claim that, which is, like I say, the, the height of insanity. Only God is uncreated, eternally self-existent, I am. These other beings, these created beings, are referred to as gods. And when we refer to them in English, we usually do the lowercase g so that we understand. We're not talking about God, we're talking about these other folks. So here's your vocabulary, there's a string of them. First of all, you start with your basic L, E-L, or apostrophe E-L, because it technically starts with the Aleph character. This Aleph character is not pronounced. That little guy right there. Okay? It's not pronounced, but it is a uh, consonant, and it is uh, so you, when you transliterate it, you should have the apostrophe in front of the, the E-L. Number 410 in the Strong's Index. Alright? L. And the, and the best way to pronounce the Aleph is to simply close your throat. It's like the H in honest. Okay? You don't say honest, you say honest, but you start with a closed throat when you say honest, right? Follow that? So that's the pronunciation for L. You start with your throat closed because the Aleph is a consonant L, or actually L if you want to lengthen the, the vowel on that, number 410. That's your basic noun, L, singular masculine noun. And all of these created beings, these um, Spirit realm beings, we usually think of as angels, uh, of the highest rank of them were called El, or in the plural, Elohim. There is a uh, longer form of El, number 426 in the Strong's Concordance, called Allah. Again, they're all going to start with the same Aleph Lambda um, or Aleph Lamed uh, root. So you have El, number 410, 
Elah, number 426. Don't confuse Allah with Allah. <laughs> Although, do you see a, a cognate relationship there with the Arabic language? Hope so, because Hebrew and Arabic are cognates. All right, so El and Allah. And then uh, a longer form of Allah is Eloah, E-L-O-W-A-H, number 433. And all of those, all of those are translated as God in one passage or another, multiple passages, see. Sometimes with reference to the real God, sometimes with reference to false gods or idols or angels posing as gods and so forth. And then there's the plural noun of Elohim, number 430. Elohim, 430. And the im ending is your masculine plural ending. And it's what you would expect as a plural of either El or Elah or Eloah. Either way, you can pluralize them there and end up with Elohim. So they are create, yet they are created beings. They are human beings, are angelic beings. See, I think there's one obscure passage that has a uh, a mighty man of valor, a, a, a warrior hero, David type, one of David's mighty men, where they might be also referenced as an L, as a, a a human being called a god, just simply in comparison with fellow human beings. In that, but mostly though, when we have these El or Elohim beings in Scripture, they are angelic spirit realm beings. So this emphasizes their beyond earthly power. That, this is what helps us to relax. We're not plunging into a realm of polytheism. We're not saying that uh, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit are simply you know one God in a pantheon or one God in a uh, with a whole bunch of peers. They have no peer. He is the one true God, the only self-existent, eternal, uncreated I Am of the universe is God. He's not one of a pantheon, but these other beings are called gods, and we need to relax our vocabulary and not get so worked up about it. <laughs> All right. And when we call them gods, we're just simply identifying their beyond earthly power even beyond angelic power i mean angels themselves are powerful but these guys are ranked even higher than them they have divine power not just angelic power so this emphasizes their beyond earthly power but does not make any claim to their uncreated eternally self-existent peer status with the most high he has no peer who is like the most high god there is none like him there are gods but none like him. And that's the distinction that Old Testament makes. So if we're, if we're cool with that, then we can, uh, we can proceed from there. Uh, let's look at the context on this, backing up to verse 1. And this is where it helps to recognize the verbs attached to the nouns. Okay? God takes his stand in his own congregation. Now this is Elohim. We're going to be Elohim throughout this passage. Elohim takes his stand. Now that's Elohim as a plural noun, but takes his stand as a singular verb. See, maybe the simplest way in English is to contrast between is and are, right? If I say God is, then you know I'm talking about one God is. God is powerful. Or say, gods are powerful. The difference between is and are is the difference between a singular and a plural verb, is all I'm saying. Okay? And that's why you have to pay attention to that, because Elohim by itself is plural in form, but oftentimes is singular in use because it's referring to, to the one true God. And that's what we have here. Elohim is, with a singular verb, Elohim takes his stand in his own congregation. 
he judges in the midst of Elohim, in the midst of the gods. In the midst of the gods. So we're going to have here both singular and plural uses of Elohim throughout these eight verses. And sorting them out is critical. Failure to sort them out is what I think leads people into their into the realms of confusion. So how long will you judge unjustly and show partiality to the wicked? He is taking his stand. This is uh, a time of his evaluation of their job performance. Similar to what we have in Job chapter 1 when the sons of God appear before him and they have to report to him. They're being graded. They're being evaluated. They're answering for their actions. How long will you judge unjustly and show partiality to the wicked? Vindicate the weak and the fatherless. Do justice to the afflicted and destitute. And all of these verbs are all plural. How long will y'all, plural, judge, plural, show partiality, plural, vindicate, plural. They're all speaking to Yahweh here, or Elohim here, is speaking to these plural Elohim and tearing them up because they're not, they're not doing what they're supposed to be doing. Rescue the weak and needy. Deliver them out of the hand of the wicked. They do not know, nor do they understand. They walk about in darkness and all the foundations of the earth are shaken. We're going we're gonna to plunge into this more in a more developed fashion in, in an upcoming angelology study because what's the time frame for this chapter? When did this uh, conversation take place when Elohim took his stand in the congregation and rebuked the Elohim? Well, when do we know about the uh, darkness being plunged over everything and the uh, foundations of the earth shaken and the tohu wabohu destruction of the angelic earth. See, yeah, well, we'll have some more on that. So I said, you are gods. You, plural, are Elohim and you are sons of the Most High. You ever think about that phrase, Most High? He's the Most High what? He's the Most High God. He's the Most High L. So if he's the Most High L. Does that not tell you that there are other Elohim? There's got to be other Elohim around, or else it's a, it's a tragic lie to call myself the Most High God if I'm the only one. How can I be the Most High El if there are no other Elohim in the universe? See, otherwise it's just a tongue-in-cheek, sarcastic kind of title, right? Like when I was 16 years old and put my I made my own uh, head waiter name tag. And I was. I was head waiter at the the restaurant where I worked because there were 17 waitresses and me. I was the only waiter, the only male. And so there were 17 waitresses, and I made my own name tag. I think I paid five bucks for it or something. But anyway, I went to a little shop and had a name tag made up, and it had my name said head waiter because I was the only waiter. (laughs) That was my mind. Anyway. Did not make some of those waitresses happy. There was one, her name was Sharon, of all things, and she was not happy. Anyway, he is the most high God, meaning the of the other elves, they answer to him. All right, they answer to him. Because obviously he is a being of divine power. <laughs> he is the almighty, the being of all power. So, uh, I said you are gods. Let me finish out the last verses here of Psalm 82. I said you are gods, and all of you are sons of the Most High. 
nevertheless, you will die like men. You will die like men. That is so critical in understanding the judgment that's coming upon these Elohim. They are going to die like men, like, like humanity, the realm of humanity. That right there demands that the, the, the people being addressed here cannot be men. Because men, of course men die like men. Men are men. <laughs> it's, not a, it's not an aspect of judgment to tell a human being that he's going to die like a human being. But if you pass judgment upon a spirit realm being who occupies the spirit dimension, who is not mortal as we think of mortality, and you tell this eternal, immortal uh, spirit realm being that he's going to die like the realm of humanity, well, that's saying something. That's a legitimate realm of judgment, or that's a legitimate consequence. You will die like men. You can't use that. You can't use the like. You can't use the, the comparison with itself. Say, like, you know, years ago telling my daughter, I say, you throw like a girl. She said, Dad, I am a girl. <laughs> oh, okay. See, if you're going to die like men, what does that tell you? He's not talking to the realm of humanity. He's talking to angelic beings here. And this is, again, part of the consequence of the angelic fall, the angelic rebellion, and their abuses, their tyranny that they executed uh, during the uh, angelic stewardship. The point, though, is this. And this is what he's making when we go back to John chapter 10. If Psalm 82.6 is unbreakably true, because Scripture cannot be broken. There's, there's two things at work here, actually. First of all, God cannot lie. So the moment that he said it, you are God's. The moment that he said it, well, then that's a true statement. And then he places it in Scripture. So he said it, and then he places it in Scripture. And you see, what you do with that is you've just doubled up the uh, the... The, uh, they're both infinitely true, of course. Anything he says is true. But he says it, so it's true. Then he puts it in Scripture. Now it's unbreakable. Now it's on record. Now it's in writing. Now it is on display for the angelic realm, the human realm alike, to view what God has declared with respect to these people that he was speaking to. So Psalm 82.6 is unbreakably true law. And he calls it law here, even though it's in Psalms instead of the Pentateuch, then Jesus' sanctified mission cannot be blasphemous. That's his logic, and it's irrefutable. If Psalm 82.6 is unbreakably true Scripture, it is Scripture, then Jesus' sanctified apostolic mission cannot be blasphemous. He leads them to this conclusion, and they have no answer for it. Again, we look at verses 35 and 36 here back in John chapter 10. Spell this out. If he called them gods to whom the word of God came. He said it. The word of God came. God spoke it to these people. Is God a liar? God's not a liar. So they are gods. That's true. And scripture cannot be broken. He said it. He put it in Scripture. That's two reasons. 
do you say of him whom the Father sanctified and apostello sent into the world? Remember, he is the apostle and high priest of our confession. Jesus Christ is the sent one. He may have gathered twelve apostles to, to train and to serve under him, but he was the apostle, the sent one. And that's the verb that we have here, <clears throat> apostello, Jesus Christ, the apostle and high priest of our confession. So Jesus' sanctified apostolic mission cannot be blasphemous. Do you say of him whom the Father sanctified and sent into the world, you are blaspheming because I said, I am the Son of God. He said, I and the Father are one. I am the Son of God. He makes statements about you shall see the Son returning on the clouds. His statements here are not in themselves blasphemous and they're not blasphemous at all because they're true. They're true. You know, we have a similar application in our own stewardship in the church age. Every last one of us can claim to be sons of God. See, daughters of God. Let's get gender inclusive. You know, NIV keeps trying to change the gender inclusive language. We are sons and daughters of God. Does that, is that blasphemy to say that? In fact, our sonship is even greater than the sons of God, angelic beings that have that title. That's going to be uh, a wonderful thing to observe in, uh, in glory. But then he goes on. And I think this is gracious. Let's, let's look at these last verses here, 37 through 39. Because they have no answer. And he doesn't really wait for an answer. He just keeps on going. He says, if I do not do the works of my Father, then don't believe me. <laughs> he, tells them to, he tells these people not to believe in him. That's kind of a goofy gospel message, isn't it? Would you ever do that? Someone asks you about eternal life and you say, well, don't believe in Jesus. But understand what he's saying here. He's, saying, he's only saying don't believe if he wasn't doing any miracles. Say, well, the fact is he was doing miracles. He was doing a lot of miracles. And he's going to go to the cross and he's going to rise, uh, rise again on the third day. So you have every reason from Genesis to Revelation, you've got every reason in Scripture to believe in Jesus. Because of the testimony that's offered, because of the evidence that's laid out, because of the the uh, the uh, passages of Scripture that support his own testimony. But if I do not do the works of my Father, do not believe me. But if I do them, though you don't believe me, believe the works. At least acknowledge the miracles and acknowledge what the Scripture says about the miracles. Can you at least do that? You know, Jesus has given the shirt off his back here. He's going the extra mile with these guys. It's a point we want to learn here. And let's look at it here under point D. The miracles he performed were his credentials from God the Father. The miracles he performed were his credentials from God the Father. This, this is so missed. Uh, Pentecostalism misses the point of the miracles. Charismatic uh, brothers and sisters miss the point of the miracles. Even unbelievers miss the point of the miracles. The miracles were not just uh, for showing off. They weren't just to, to do things for, the, for our sake. You know, healing wasn't so that uh, people wouldn't have to be sick. You know, those were almost the, the side effects, the consequences uh, that uh, somebody was healed. Great, they're not lame anymore. Wonderful. But that wasn't the point. The point was to establish the authority of the one speaking. Not just true for Jesus, but for the apostles and prophets after Jesus in the first part of the church age, the apostolic age, and then prior to Jesus. 
the the apostles, Moses or the uh, the prophets rather in the Old Testament, Moses and and uh, Ezekiel and Jeremiah, Isaiah, they were given miracles to perform that gave uh, testimony to their they were their credentials for their message, so that you would listen to their message, so that when they composed scripture, you knew that the hand of God was upon them, and they were simply the tools. God was the one composing scripture. It was the mark of their divine agency that God had sent them. And so, fundamentally, with the completion of the canon of Scripture, we don't need any more miracles. God does not need to validate any more apostolic ministries and Scripture writing because the canon is closed. The New Testament is complete. I don't know if you ever uh, debate Mormons or Seventh-day Adventists or Jehovah's Witnesses or Muslims. Or pick your own, pick your own cult. Every last one of them that showed up with a, with a new Bible in hand or a new uh, you know sacred writings and, and follow this, you know from the Book of Mormon to uh, Mary Baker Eddy's writings or Watchtower Society or the Quran or any of this other stuff, they show up and say, okay, replace your Bibles now with these writings. Show me your credentials. All right. Show me your credentials. What miracles did you do? What testimony is there that, uh, that God has indeed sent you? How do I identify that you're a true prophet from heaven and not just a, a satanic liar as uh, Jesus promised would, would be coming? See, <laughs> in any event, Jesus is not entitled to belief without the miracles. Jesus is not entitled to belief Slash trust. You want to combine the two in your understanding of pistuo. He's not entitled to belief or trust without the miracles. I might leave you a little uncomfortable just reading that or thinking about it or saying it this morning, but he said it, so I'm just repeating it. He's not entitled to it. He tells him, don't. Don't believe in me. If I'm not doing these miracles, don't believe in me. He's not entitled to the belief. See, I don't believe in Jesus because he was a good man or he taught good things. Right? And then what the world says, he was a moral man, he was a fine teacher, and you know, like Buddha or like all these other guys, they try to limit Jesus or put him down. They denigrate him by lowering him to a status with peers, you know, as if, yeah, you can get some good things reading what Jesus said and get some good things reading what Confucius said and get some good things reading about, you know, whoever, collective wisdom of some human being somewhere. You know how blasphemous that is? denigrating the, the unique celebrity of the universe and his glory. I don't believe in him because of that. I believe in him because of the testimony that the Father testified of him, the works that he did primarily, the work he did of atonement on the cross. That's, that's the, the one that's been promised since the seed of the woman promise and becomes the theme all throughout the Scriptures. And he rose again on the third day and the, the offer of salvation is given. Yeah, I'm going to trust in that, you bet. Uh, had that not happened, would he be entitled to, the, to, to my faith, to my trust? Yeah, if you think about it, what he says here, if I don't do the works of my Father, then don't believe me. Don't believe me. That's his instruction. We want to understand that. I think um, this, is, this may be a, an element of apologetics or an element of, of evangelism, what have you, but you know, if people want to, if they want reasons for why they should trust in Jesus, well, then give them some reasons. You know, we're not expected to believe blindly or believe in nothing. We're expected to believe based on the evidence. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the Word of God. And uh, 
Next time someone just accuses you of blind faith, just laugh at them. Okay? Because it's not blind. It's not blind. There is all kinds of evidence. There is more evidence than you can shake a stick at. All right. He's not entitled to belief without the miracles. And yet, Jesus offers the miracles as an alternative object for faith. He offers the miracles as an alternative object for faith. And why does he do that? I think it's because he knows how subjective they are and he knows how blind they are and he's hoping that at least something is going to pierce through. So he says, if I do them, even though you don't believe me, believe the works. In other words, believe the miracles. Even though you don't believe me. Say, truth is, they hated him. They hated him. They despised him. He was this Galilean yokel. Didn't go to their schools. And he's got all these followers, which really bugged him. (laughs) Okay? And it may be that their antagonism to him personally left them so subjective they couldn't. They couldn't trust him. They couldn't believe him. They didn't even want to listen to him. So he's saying, all right, keep on hating me. That's fine. Just believe the miracles. Open your eyes and see God is at work here. Can you at least see that? Can you trust in the, in the miracles that are being done? Will you at least accept that God's working here? And, and many of them did. And that's what left them in such conniptions. They said, we can't deny these miracles are being done. Since their subjective religiosity would not allow them to believe him, perhaps their objective humanity would be persuaded by works of God. At some point, humanity confronted with, with divine power is overwhelmed. You just you can't help but see a miracle before your eyes or a dozen miracles before your eyes or 40 miracles. Um, different people categorize different counts of miracles in his lifetime, but you, know, you just start getting overwhelmed with these works of divine power. And you're struck with your own mortality, your own humanity, your own limitations. You know, in a lot of ways, the, the, the most fertile ground you find in your evangelism is when the person you're talking to is just inescapably crushed by their own mortality. Maybe it's at a funeral and a loved one just died, or maybe they're just they're overwhelmed by this life. And they know that, that they're going to die too someday. And, and, then, and then what? And they, and they might spouse, uh, they might, uh, you know... Uh, flap their gums over some kind of how proud they are to be an atheist. Um, but in the, in the darkness of their soul, in the middle of the night, when, they, when there's no one else to lie to but themselves, what are they left with? They're going to face their own humanity. They're going to face their own mortality. And at some point, when humanity touches deity, the Holy Spirit's convicting and the Father's drawing, and that veil of darkness is being shredded, we say pierced, but you know when it's pierced with so many holes, it's like Swiss cheese. It's just shredded, and that veil is gone, and there's the truth. And humanity is face to face with deity at that point. You know, what does it take to overcome the subjectivity to finally just say, "All right, I give up. This is true. This is true." So Jesus is is pleading with him here. If I do them, though you don't believe me, believe the works. Believe the works. See, Pastor today can say something very similar in, in sense of, you know, your, your argument is not with me. It's with the Scriptures. Go read the Scriptures. Don't fight with me about it. 
You can hate my guts all you want. That's fine. Just this is what you got to live by. That's what you got to live by. So don't, you know, don't blame me for what it is that's convicting your soul. Answer to this. Okay. And I, and I see this and I see Jesus just pleading with these guys who hate his guts. And I, and, um, there's just a lot of patterns there. I think we can follow today in terms of, uh, you know, subjectivity and objectivity and, and things there. Since their subjective religiosity would not allow them to believe him, perhaps their objective humanity would be persuaded by the works of God. Thirdly, believing the miracles, believing the miracles would enable the Jews to know and believe the oneness of God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. In other words, they can get saved. Believing the miracles would enable the Jews to know and believe the oneness of God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, i.e. receive eternal life and be saved. Can you see what he says here in this last half of the verse? And this is hard. I mean, this is not easy. You may, you may have to listen to this MP3 eight times in the next eight days. Might even get a uh, pastor up in Wisconsin somewhere writing a journal article about me for saying this. Because what's the object of faith here? What's the object of faith? It's not Jesus. He says, don't believe me, believe the works. Believe the works so that, purpose clause and clause of result, so that you may know and understand the Father is in me and I in the Father. You may know and understand that the Father is in me and I in the Father. If they place their faith in these works being done, if they place their faith in these works being done, they're going to come to this knowledge, this full knowledge of the Father and the Son. You may know and understand the Father is in me and I in the Father. And what does that mean? Well, hold your finger there and he tells us what this means. Related over to John 17 and verse 3. Jesus spoke these things, lifting up his eyes to heaven. He said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you. Even as you gave him authority over all flesh, that to, all, to whom you have given him, he may give eternal life. Remember that? My sheep know my voice. The Father gives them to me, and I lose not one of them. Remember that? And the ones that, that the Father gives to the Son, he gives them eternal life. And they shall not perish, and no one will snatch them from his hand. You've got to put chapter 10 together with chapter 17 in, in some very powerful ways here. So, to all whom you have given Him, He may give eternal life. And Jesus Christ, God the Son, gives eternal life to the sheep that God the Father gives Him. And what is eternal life? We have our own definitions, right? What's eternal life? Well, never dying, living forever. Well, more than that, a lot more than that. This is eternal life. Hey, Bible gives us a definition here. Oh, look at that. That they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. Here's a definition of eternal life, and it deals with the Father and the Son. Remember, it's Antichrist that denies the Father and the Son. But that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. In other words, backing up now to 1038, Believe the works so that you may know and understand the Father is in me and I in the Father. Understand that I and the Father are one. What he tried to tell him back in verse 30 and they wanted to stone him. So he takes the time to explain it again. 
changes the terms a little bit, tries to explain it again. Change the terms, explain it again. Very patiently witnessing, testifying. You may know and understand the Father is in me and I in the Father. In other words, that oneness, receive eternal life, the definition of eternal life in John 17, 3, and be saved. The miracles could make it undeniable for them. This is God. God is with us. They can testify God is with us. And what does that click? That clicks Emmanuel. That clicks the Scriptures. That clicks uh, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son. That clicks all of the covenant promises. This is Christ. This is our Savior. And this can prompt their faith response. See, you know, we talk about, we've had questions too. And when you, when you evangelize, do you stress the eternal life? Do you stress the forgiveness of sins? Do you stress the, the reconciliation to the Father? Or all of the above, see. Or, uh, depending on circumstances, what are you led to speak about? What, what is it that, that hits home? What is it that they're asking questions about? And it may be that, it might be that forgiveness of sins is what they're asking about because they've, whatever, they've got guilt going on, they're, they've got sins they're worked up over, and the idea of sins being forgiven is just uh, exactly where the conviction of the Spirit's been, where the drawing of the Father's been, and that's the hook that bears the fruit and, and, and they come to Christ. But it might be different with the next person the next day. Maybe for them it's the reconciliation to the Father. That, you know, in Adam I'm separated, I have no peace, I'm, I'm alien, I'm, I'm an enemy. But in Christ I am brought to the Father, I'm restored to a sonship relationship. And maybe the idea of being a son of God and reconciled, and that might be, you know, it's, we're, we're not denying the other components of it, not at all. Of course, sins are forgiven and eternal life and all that. But it just may be that there's a facet, there's an element that happens to be the one that is the, the hook. It's the one that's being convicted by the Spirit. It's the one that's being drawn by the Father. It's the one that's being worked over in their soul. It's the one that they need to have addressed where they place their faith in what Christ did for them. See? And so, uh, in so many ways, I think the, the journals and the articles and the conference speakers and all the debate about the object of faith and, all, and about uh, the, the understanding of what Christ did and so on and so forth... Um, they have their place, but they go too far in so many ways. And that's uh, something we want to recognize. Okay. Believing the miracles will enable the Jews to know and believe the oneness of God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Believing the miracles, and they'd say, this is God right in front of us. What an opportunity. The last element we want to get here is point five. Subjectivity defeated objectivity. Sad to say it. They didn't respond by faith here. They were seeking again to seize him, and, they, and he eluded their grasp. Subjectivity defeated objectivity. Religion defeated faith. Does that mean God's plan was thwarted? Not at all. His, his grace is no less gracious. His salvation is no less offered, even if it's rejected. But in the souls of the Jews who were dedicated to his death... Subjectivity wins out on this occasion. On this occasion. And that's not to say that next week it won't be different. Or a month after that it won't be different. It may be that in the resurrection appearances, many of these folks will uh, will see the, the Christ whom they crucified. We know in the tribulation that's going to take place, every eye will behold Him. All Israel will behold 
Jesus Christ whom they pierced. On a national basis then, uh, with that repentance, all Israel shall be saved. But on this case, subjectivity defeated objectivity. Religion defeated faith. And the souls of the Jews were dedicated at Jesus' death in John 10.39. I hope we can uh, be relaxed about it in our own uh, evangelism. That uh, if they blow you off, it's not your defeat, right? No one comes unless the Father who sends me draws him. If, if they were being drawn, if they were being given to Jesus Christ at this time, then uh, you could have been the crummiest evangelist on earth and they'd have still gotten saved. Because not one of them, Jesus won't lose even one that the Father gives to him. So just uh, stay faithful, stay humble. Um, maybe give it to him again next time. Give it to him again next time. I told you the, uh, the fellow I visit out in Huntsville every month, he... Uh, he was led to Christ uh, by a faithful Christian testimony, uh, a witness. And um, it took two times. And the first time, uh, he didn't want any part of it. And uh, in fact, the first time he even gave, gave the, the fellow reasons to never talk to him again. And yet, uh, didn't stop that faithful evangelist. Came back a week later. Said, I really want to talk to you about what you rejected last week. And got saved that second time going back imagine that i think it was a week apart maybe it was a little bit more than that but any event so they were seeking again to seize him and he eluded their grasp so when subjectivity loses our defeats objectivity don't be discouraged just recognize that that is what it is it is what it is all right well that wraps up our uh, episode here when we come back next week then we'll be ready to move on to episode number 19 and um I don't have my harmony with me. So we'll be surprised. I forget this morning. Episode 19 is back to the Gospel of Luke again. Anybody have a harmony with him? Oh, it doesn't matter. Be surprised. Come back next week. How about that? Thank you, Father, for the truth of your word, for your faithfulness. Thank you uh, for this study. And, Father, uh, as we see the patience of our Savior to to keep uh, speaking the truth, to, to reference the Scriptures, to... Uh, to just lay it out there for folks in an undeniable way. Father, I pray that we too might be imitators of that. We might learn from such patterns. We're also, Father, very humbled to recognize that there is a vast realm of angelic uh, teaching that we need to study and understand. And I thank you that uh, the passages coming up in Corinthians are going to take us into some of those realms. And I pray, Father, that we might be diligent to uh, to learn these things and also to recognize that when we do venture into the into the angelic realms of Scripture, that it does provoke the, the conflict. The adversary does not like being exposed. He, uh, he's, he's very uh, eager to uh, keep the mask on, to keep his disguise going as an angel of light. And when that gets stripped away, when, uh, when the darkness of his rebellion gets exposed, Father, it, it does spark uh, conflict in the assembly. And we want to be aware of that. We want to be on guard against that. We're not afraid of it. But we know it's coming, Father, and we just thank you for taking us in these realms of teaching. Thank you for leading us in your triumph in Christ. Father, it's a wonderful, triumphant parade, and we thank you for that, and we thank you in Christ's name. Amen.